Hi, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Schoolhouse Rocks. We have a very special guest joining us today uh, to talk about his research and the amazing work he has done as it pertains to classroom assessment as well as grade reporting. Uh, we've utilized his literature quite extensively as we consider our own practices and work very hard to improve what we're doing here in our school district, not only for the benefit of students and their learning outcomes, but also as it pertains to how we communicate progress towards those learning outcomes with their parents as well as with students. So let's take some time, introduce ourselves, um, my colleagues here in the school district, as well as our very special guest. Oh, hi, everybody. I'm Chris Zegar. I'm the assistant principal at the Lincoln Roosevelt School here in the district. That's uh, grades five and six. Hi, everyone. It's Alyssa Bellardino. I'm the pre-K to six humanities supervisor. Hi, I'm Jeff Fashina. I'm the supervisor of mathematics, business, and family consumer science for grades seven through 12. And our esteemed guest, Dr. Gusky, would you please introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about the work you've done. Sure, Chuck. Uh, I'm Tom Gusky. I'm a professor emeritus at the University of Kentucky. I'm coming to you today from my home in Lexington, where it is uh, sunny but very, very cold. <laughs> very, very similar kind of weather here. So we really do appreciate you joining us um, for, for this special conversation about grading and assessment, grade reporting. It's something that certainly is kind of a long-range goal. It's something that is challenging. It's a needle that's challenging to move because a lot of the perception um, that needs to be kind of dug through when making any change from assessment, grade reporting, or, or in this vicinity um, generally reaches some opposition because the people in the conversation, whether that be parents, teachers, have a frame of reference about their own experience. And their own experience as a student differs from the dialogue we're having now, and that's natural. Education has evolved dramatically and continues to be one of the most rapidly changing industries. And so it's only natural for that change to cause some concern, some confusion, some need for further explanation. And so that's hopefully what we uh, intend to achieve today, which is a little bit further dialogue about what are the best practices currently with classroom assessment? How does that match uh, appropriate grade reporting? And how can that grade reporting, which many people, and I'm sure we will in this conversation, refer to as the report card, be utilized um, to really describe progress towards learning to not only students, but also parents in a way that is consumable and goal-oriented as opposed to a very traditional format that is more symbol-oriented. And by that, I mean an A has taught everyone to elicit certain feelings, a B similarly, right, A, B, C, D, F, that structure elicits feelings, but doesn't necessarily communicate concrete information. So we're going to dig into that today. So let's start with assessment, right, in the classroom. What's that look like? How should we be utilizing that in-class time to gather knowledge about students um, to not only direct our interactions with them, but next steps in terms of how we teach? So within the classroom, I think there are so many valuable assessments that teachers do day to day with their students, right? So there, when you talk about assessment, there are two different types of assessment that you want to consider. You have your formative day to day um, observations, activities that students do, dialogue that you have in your classroom that is helping to make instructional decisions for the following day and moving forward. Um, and that looks like whether it is an exit slip, a quick conversation, a question that they put on the board, um, opportunities for students to show their knowledge of that particular skill that was taught that day. And then you think about your summative assessments, right? And those are maybe benchmark assessments that we give um, in the elementary world. You can think about uh, teacher's college running record. You can think about our IXL diagnostic. And so there are so many data points coming in. But when we consider assessment and what that truly means, we know that assessment helps 
to think about the overall process of learning. So those day-to-day assessments, activities, dialogue, conversations, whatever it may be, are really what drive our teachers to plan the next day's activities or lessons. So let's talk about that. So Dr. Guskey, she gives us that quick analysis, which I really like um, about the differences between formative and summative assessment. Let's talk about why are those things both critical to an impactful learning experience and how can teachers really differentiate the, the dis- how can they make a distinction about when to use each one and how each one should inform their work with students? Yeah. Well, this all goes back to work of Benjamin Bloom back in the late 1960s, early 1970s. Um, Benjamin Bloom, this is the same Benjamin Bloom of Bloom's Taxonomy of Educational Objectives, that um, document that we all probably had to memorize at some point in our teacher preparation programs, the six levels of the taxonomy from knowledge, comprehension, uh, application, analysis, uh, and then synthesis and evaluation. But Bloom, about 15 years after that, was deeply concerned with issues of quality of instruction. And he recognized that the assessments most teachers use in their teaching served only for the purposes of evaluation. They documented whether students had learned the things well or not. And uh, Bloom recommended that we really change that, that we redesign assessments so they can become a part of the instructional process. He recommended having them become learning tools. And to stress that, he stressed, he emphasized that we should change the name. It was from Benjamin Bloom in 1968 that we got the phrase formative assessment, meaning to inform. His idea was that as the tests should be used or assessment should be used to communicate to students what was important for them to learn, uh, identify among those things what they've learned well, and then what they need to learn better. But he also recognized that those assessments alone were not going to be sufficient that just telling students what was right or wrong or what they did well or did poorly wasn't going to be enough. That teachers had to supplement that with guidance and direction to students as to how they could improve. And it was Benjamin Bloom who really emphasized this notion of using assessments as part of the instructional process to communicate to students um, what they've learned well and not, but also to communicate to teachers what they taught well and what didn't work. That when I look at assessment results, even for my students, I need to identify those things that seem to come across pretty well that my students gain and learn from my instruction, but places where it might have broken down. And I've discovered that I'm not very good at predicting that. I used to think I was. I used to think that I could really predict where my students had learned well, but I've had instances where I thought I presented these ideas very well. I mean, I said, the principal should have been here today. I mean, I was on. This was, we had a video cameras were on. This was great. I asked my students about it later, and they didn't get it. And see, that was the main point. If they didn't get it, it didn't work. And, and so to provide that information for us as teachers, too, to determine what we did well, where we can make our instruction more effective, is really critical and really important, uh, not only to help students learn better, to help us as teachers teach better. And then the other purpose was to actually use assessments then for for grading or evaluation purposes. Bloom stressed that you cannot look at an assessment and determine whether it is formative or summative. Uh, It really comes from how you use the results. And so the same assessment could be used for both purposes. We find this often to be the case at the elementary level where teachers are working on some pretty basic skills. 
And I might be asking a student questions about a particular skill, and those questions all are formative until the student gets it. When they show me they've got it, then I can say, oh, well, now it's summative, and I can confirm that you have mastered this skill and we're ready to move on. So I, I think you bring up a really important point building off what Alyssa said about how we need to use assessment as a tool to inform instruction, and it's equally informative for the student and for the teacher. So I want to talk a little bit about what practices we've started to emphasize here as we discuss um, a, a high-quality learning environment with with colleagues about how do we utilize and leverage that information, right? And I know, Jeff, you've started to work with your teachers on considering allowing students opportunities to re-demonstrate. Sometimes that's called retaking, right? Giving them an opportunity to demonstrate knowledge in another way. Um, Chris, you've also worked on mm -hmm. particularly a lot of intervention structures that really focus on how do we as educators utilize the information we get back from students to redirect the way we deliver instruction? Because that's a lot of what I'm hearing. And I love Dr. Gusky's point. It's really hard to predict Right. We think as educators, I mean, I remember as you said that, I kind of laughed to myself. I remember plenty of lessons where I was like, that was awesome. I was awesome today. <laughs> and then the kids came in the next day and they're like, I have no idea what you talked about yesterday. Um, so that I think that's part of the partnership that is learning. Yeah. So I wanted to talk about the assessment results, so to speak, is like we tend to we tend, you know, and everything's typical and not everybody does this is not a universal quantifier by any standards. But like typically what we do is you look at things as a global level, right? Like, oh, the class average was an 82. OK, it wasn't so bad. Right. But what does that 82 actually mean? And it makes me reconsider like just the design of assessments. How are we designing the questions in what order? Right. I mean, again, typical math test, 20 you know, equation kind of problems and then like maybe some five word problems at the end of the test and everything's kind of discombobulated as far as topics are concerned that you're trying to collect evidence on. So considering how you're designing that test so this way you could target your instruction and figure out, okay, while the class average was at 82, most of our kids were able to get topic A, but we had a big struggle on topic B and then like a slight struggle on topic C. All right, we need to remediate here and do that. Uh, the other thing that moving towards uh, in our classroom instruction um I always kind of poke at this when we do a podcast uh, in the math department, really utilizing the building thinking classroom model a lot. And one of the pieces of the building thinking classroom model is that assessment piece at the end. And we kind of talk about things in a mild, medium and spicy level as far as how hard are you going to actually work on a problem or how difficult the problem is. And then we're collecting that data. So this way you could see like as most of the class trying just at a mild level, very easy entry level type, or are they challenging themselves and going up into a spicy level and so on? And where is that going? So if you're collecting days worth of data from there, from doing different types of lessons in a BTC model, then what you can do is you could direct your instruction at the end for differentiation. And where's our group that needs a little more support? Where's our group that's kind of gonna need some simple practice? And where's our group that we really need to do some extension on and dividing our time very equally amongst those three groups? I'm gonna start using spicy more often. You should. When I think <laughs> of higher level skills. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, you know, when we're looking at uh, collecting information on, on students and you know, pulling together the data to be able to kind of figure out what you're really doing, I think, in a lot of cases is telling a story. And you're telling a story about a, about a, a person. And, you know, if you think of it that way, you're, what you have to think about, too, is like, what are we measuring? What do we value um, to construct that story? And there are certain things, we, you know, just because I, I think we're going to get into a conversation, too, about like what is compliance, you know, what is uh, value oriented goals versus what are standard-oriented goals, right? And and I think in, in some cases, there's some confusion here where we talk about what, what what matters and what doesn't. And I think in a lot of cases, a lot of those things do matter. 
But when you put them all together in the blender and you come out with a number, that's where you have a problem because you're, you're not telling an accurate story. So what you want to do is you say, okay, you know, we value the ability for a student to be creative and helpful. We also value a student to be able to, um, you know, meet standard benchmarks and, and know where they need support in certain areas. In, these are these are things that are really important. You, you want a kid who's going to be well-adjusted and all that kind of stuff. But we want to also create a reporting system that allows us to be able to accurately assess and, and, and take stock in, in where a student needs supports in each of those areas. And what we want to try to avoid is making an, an A, B, C kind of argument about that kid because what is a C? Is a C a kid who is trying really hard, but you know has some specific types of struggles and need needs some supports academically? Is a C a kid who goes home, works a second job, and and can't do their homework? Like, like what is C? Um, and I think by parsing out what the different indicators are that we value, and to measure those indicators, we can get a much better story uh, of a student. And and so just by way of kind of natural segue there, Chris, you you introduce. The concept we discuss here, and Dr. Guskey, I think you and I have talked about this in the past, we utilize the language data blender, right? We take all this information, we toss it into some formula calculations, which are um, inconsistent from school to school, department to department, really sometimes teacher to teacher, classroom to classroom, um, mm -hmm. and outcomes some final number or letter. Um, and Chris brings up a really great point that oftentimes the information we utilize to determine that final number or letter um, consists of a wide variety of pieces of information, all which paint different factors or story parts about that youngster and their learning journey. Um, and we don't necessarily separate for value. And I know in your your book, Get Set Go, you kind of talk about the distinction between product and process. And I think that's really kind of where Chris is going there, which is we have a responsibility for evaluating student learning as it pertains to achievement of standards, which are adopted by our state, then written into our curriculum. That's one thing. That's like kind of the academic aspect. But there's a lot of factors that contribute to a youngster's potential ability to be successful there that do exceed just sheer intelligence, right? Um, and how, you know, their ability to gain information from the teacher's lesson, even regardless of the, the, the point of interaction there, right? You have things like attitude, effort, uh, homework completion, you know, things like that, that are hard to quantify that you have kind of talked about in your book as process indicators, right, where you have a youngster who could potentially be very high academically, but perhaps does not have the greatest contributions, or the best attitude, or, as Chris mentioned, maybe they don't complete their homework for a wide variety of reasons. Some may just be like non-compliance, but other times you may have youngsters who have other obligations. Some are um, personal they, they participate in sports. They have a job. Some are a really familial necessity. I have a single parent at home, and I need to help my first grade brother get it, and, you know, get a bath and get ready for bed and eat dinner. And that really consumes other time. So, um, let's talk a little bit about the separation of those factors because it'll set us up for kind of the direction I think we should go. Hold on, Chris wants to jump in, but I want to say one more thing. I think we're ready for that sort of dialogue in this district because Dr. Guskey, you may or may not be aware. Five or six years ago, we adopted a portrait of a graduate, which identifies the characteristics and qualities that we hope a young person would attain proficiency in during their journey through our school district, none of which are directly academically based or uh, like test score based, right? <laughs> there are things like creativity, adaptability, resilience, life-ready skills, leadership. Like these are the skills that really fall into that process, right? Chris talked about, are they creative? Are they helpful? Like those things that we know will serve them really well in life alongside the things they know. 
Right. I think you did to kind of build on that. I just I wanted to give an example of like let's say your highest achieving students and and where sometimes the system goes awry where we give we give like an accolade when in reality there's a problem there. So you, we have, you know, a lot of and I think there's a lot of studies out there who deal with really high achieving students and what we find out about them is that they do really well in school. They're also extremely risk averse. Um, mm-hmm. and what we want to make sure is we also want to be able to, to develop a, you know, students who are you know, going to leave our care. And once the game of school is gone, then hmm. they are able to, you know, adapt into the other situations. And, and those are different types of, of, of skills. And I think this is, you know, like back to the old adage where they're just like, you know, you know, C-level, you know, students end up, you know, running companies. And, I, you know, and we all got really bad lessons from that, which was like school wasn't important, that you could be a C student. And that's like a terrible lesson. What, what we really want to say is like, we just weren't measuring the other things that these, some of these other kids were really good at that are also important um, that, that matches into that. And, you know, how, how we are able to kind of construct a, 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 a student who is successful in many different ways and how to report that and how to understand where supports are needed. So, Dr. Guskey, can you talk to us a little bit about the research you've done and your kind of perspectives as it pertains to that arena? Because that's a really emerging dialogue in education that is new, right? In the past, we really just kind of valued that ABCDF and didn't take the time to the best of my knowledge, having been a student, to really determine some of these other factors that really, as Chris say, are very critical to future success that are not all contingent on the academics of school. Yes, yeah, Chris makes some excellent points there. And it's absolutely true. We find that when when teachers grade, we know that they should be grading based on a criteria. Um, that we need to grade students according to what they've learned and what they're able to do, rather than what we call norm-based criteria. Norm-based criteria is grading on the curve, where the student's grade depends on how well that student's classmates performed. Uh, doesn't tell you anything about learning. And we really need to be criteria-based. But when we probe this a little bit more deeply, we find that there are three different types of criteria that teachers use. The first we call product criteria. And product criteria are common demonstrations of learning. You don't worry about how they got there. It's what they're able to, to know and, and they're able to do at this time. Then we have process criteria. Process criteria don't represent learning per se, but they often enable the learning process. So homework, for example, is, is a process. Uh, class participation is process. Effort is process. And finally, we have progress. With progress, you worry not so much about where they are, but how far they've come. Sometimes referred to as improvement grading or value added grading. Now, what we know is this all three are important, but all three are distinct. What gets us into trouble is exactly what, what you and uh, Chris have said when we combine these into a single grade. Researchers refer to this as the hodgepodge grade that miscommunicates about everything. Uh, the, the highly responsible low achiever gets the same grade as the irresponsible high achiever, miscommunicating about both. And so one of the most important things we've learned from our research on grading is we need to move away from a single grade to multiple grades, that we really need to be reporting these things, but we need to report them separately. So we need to pull out from that achievement grade all these sort of process indicators. Now, we find that there are three different types of process indicators. The, The first we refer to as learning enablers, and learning enablers are are practices or or activities that do enable learning process, but don't represent learning per se. So homework is a learning enabler. Class participation is a learning enabler. Formative assessments 
are learning enablers. We have another category that it falls under that broad sort of group of social and emotional learning. So here we have things like like responsibility and persistence, a growth mindset, um, all those things would fall into that category. And a, a third category is is compliance. Now, compliance is did you do what I told you you had to do? Did you turn it in on time? You know, did you meet the timelines? Now at at this point we do not have evidence to indicate among the broad range of things that could be included in any of those three, what is most important for students' success in school or their success in life? I mean, we are just starting to begin studying that. So a new center has been established at the University of Chicago to look into these non-academic factors that contributes to kids' success in school and, and their life afterwards. At Harvard University, a center has been established to look into the social and emotional learning characteristics that contribute to these. So in in perhaps five years, we'll know a lot more about this. At this time, what we do know is you can't do it all. And so what's necessary is for a faculty to sit down and look at all the possible um, areas there are here and decide what they think is most important. And it might be you're going to include some learning enablers and, and some social emotional learning and some compliance things. But the key element is you've got to get it down to about three or four. You don't want to create bookkeeping nightmares for teachers. And you want to develop clear criteria for those. So if a, if a parent comes to you and says, as a teacher, uh, you gave my kid a two in collaboration. How can you get a four? You can say, this is what level four collaboration looks like. Here's what I'd be looking for in level four. There's an example of level four collaboration. And then you want to be able to report that on the report card and also on the transcript. So we have multiple grades where we pull these things out of the achievement grade and we put them separately. Now, I know that that sounds very novel and very unique, and it is for most of us as educators here in the United States. What is ironic is that if you go to other places around the world, if you go to the Scandinavian countries in Northern Europe, if you go to places in Asia, if you go to Canada and look at the report cards, Canadian school districts have been doing this for decades. Uh, they have always given this multiple grades. They have an achievement grade, and they can use that for, for GPA and all the kind of stuff that we do. But they give it a separate grade for homework, a separate grade for class participation, uh, a separate grade for turning in assignments on time. Now, when I first saw their system, I said, wow, it looks great, but it looks like so much extra work. They turned back to me and said, it's easier than what you silly people do in the States. We collect the same information as you. We just don't worry about combining it at the end. And so all those arguments you have about how you weight stuff, how you combine it, we don't deal with it. We keep it separate. And the teachers there love it because they find kids take homework a lot more seriously when they get separate grade for homework. It's no longer can, 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 you know, put in with their, their academic grade. They also like it because if a parent questions a teacher on an achievement grade, the teacher can say, well, look over here. Maybe if your child started doing the homework more regularly, maybe they started participating in class, the achievement grade would go up. The parents like it because it gives them a better profile of the performance of their students in school, and the college universities love it because all grades are carried over on the transcript. And so if you have an and our admissions officer, and you're looking at a straight-A student, did that student get there through diligence and hard work, 
or did they get there without even trying? I'm, I'm not suggesting one is better than the other. I'm suggesting from our schools, we can't tell the difference. From their schools, you can. And so the idea is that it makes grading easier. It's no more work. And it really makes it a much more informing process than we have the present time. And even as I listen to you describe it, I think about um, a very quick sentiment in your book that stuck with me, and it's on my board to make sure that I mention here, which you just described really well, is it's not about changing what we do. It's about changing the experience. It's about changing how our school community gets to interact with student performance and all of the characteristics that embody who that youngster is as a learner and as a member of our school community. And I think you bring up a really great point, which actually kind of made me chuckle. So I don't know if it got caught on the recording or not, which is, you're, you know, the perception of Canadian teachers that you've interacted with, which is they're doing the same things. They're collecting all the information. just They just don't take that last step, which actually, in my mind, sounds easier, right? Because you, you don't get caught up in all of the nonsense of trying to figure out what a fair representation of the student looks like, right? Like we've all been, you asked me this question. You and I first spoke while we were under quarantine, and I was talking to you because Chris and I were working to establish some guidelines about how we would evaluate student progress in, uh, in, in quarantine and through virtual learning because it was such uncharted territory. And I still to this day remember you asked me a question. You said, well, let me stop you, and let me ask you to explain to me the difference in your school between an 88 and an 89. And like there was this awkward silence, which of course you you anticipated because you can't. Right. It's one point is the only way I could describe it. And it's somewhat arbitrary and nebulous. And listen, if you're doing like a 100 multiple choice question, it's easy for me to describe that difference because it's one question right or wrong. But in the final grade, you know, and so you find yourself in these situations where you have a youngster, let's say, was like, I would have been exempt from my final exam if I had three extra tenths of a point over the course of the year. Right. And then poof, like magic. There they are. Right. Like we make those decisions all the time. Um, as teachers, and that's part of your knowledge of the student, right? There's some students you're probably more likely to give those three-tenths of a point to than students. You, well, Chuck always shows good effort. You know, Chuck has a good attitude. He's always helpful, so I'll round a little bit gentler. Um, and that arbitrary nature definitely does make the grading system where we combine everything in that data blender unreliable. It paints an inaccurate picture of many, many students. Um, but, you, you know, one of the things that I think is interesting is and I'll ask Alyssa to talk about this, we're already doing some of these things and we're on this journey. Um, mm -hmm. We have a very distinct report card process, K to four. Um, our five, our fifth grade, I would actually argue is one of, is our best report card. And you might, you, you know, you or anyone listening might be like, why would fifth grade be different? And I'll explain the difference in a second. But then six through 12 are generally very more typical data blender style report cards and moving into this school year based on Dr. Guskey's work, as well as the recommendations of a grading committee that's been in place here in the district for a number of years, we have made some changes. Grades five through eight, we've added some of these um, criteria, um, great um, course criteria to our specials and our cycles classes to start to dabble in the idea of how do we report more specifics about the learning outcomes. We've begun to introduce the concept of some of those SEL and learner and learning enablers, we do that at K to four. But more importantly, we gen we just introduced globally this school year the idea of an open field narrative comment. Um, so we'll talk a little bit about the importance of comments. But before we get a bit away from the structure of the report card, I do want to go back to what Dr. Gusky talked about, which is having three or four criteria in any particular area with clear descriptors of what's the difference. If a parent were to say, my student got a two, how does that become a four? We should be able to articulate that. It shouldn't be like, mm -hmm. well, I like your kid better, <laughs> you know, things like that, right? Those are really 
put teachers in a awfully precarious position. So I know Alyssa's worked really hard with Staff K4 to establish um, those criteria and those rubrics. So you do you want to talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. So the beauty of the elementary K4 report card is that it is clustered by um, reporting standards, right? So it is a standard-specific report card that we see over the process of three trimesters throughout the year. So the information that's being reported to parents and reported to you all is based on where the student is at that time, right? So we know the New Jersey student learning standards are end-of-the-year expectations. Well, how does that, you know, my student most likely is not going to exceed or be proficient in that standard right now in September, October, whatever it may be. And so collaboratively, along with the um, report card committee for ELA and math, we put together rubrics for teachers to refer to that go over each grade level, each standard, and what the benchmarks are for certain times of the year. Um, and if you've seen our report card at the elementary level, you'll notice that there aren't particular grades like you would see A, B, C, D, but there are letters that stand for E, exceeding standards, M, meeting standards, P, progressing with help towards meeting the standard, or H, having difficulty. Sometimes you might also see an NA, which means it's not assessed at that time. But the goal is that when teachers sit down to reflect on students' learning and their instruction, they're able to have a guide to see, okay, does this student truly master it, and what does it look like at this time of year? And so I just want to clarify that point. Um, we did have an inquiry from a parent um, either last year or the year before, which is a really good one because we had these rubrics. We designed these rubrics, but we were using them internally. And there was a situation where there was a standard where a teacher reported that the student had mastered the standard. And the parents said, like, well, hold on. It's the first trimester. How could they possibly have mastered the standard? And what was really great that the parent brought that point to our attention was because we were using a rubric that was progressive. At this point in the school year, the student is mastering where we expect them to be in their journey towards achieving the standard at the end of the year. And while it sounds simple, the outcome was, why aren't we sharing these rubrics so that parents who are interested can be a part of the journey? Now, um, oftentimes, and Dr. Gusky, perhaps your experience demonstrate this as well, when we transition grade reporting away from ABCDF, eight lines, one for each class, that's super consumable. It doesn't tell you anything. It's like fast food, right? It's easy to, easy to consume, but it doesn't really give you anything valuable. Um, whereas preparing a three-course meal with really healthy ingredients takes a lot more time to consume and prepare. Um, it's much more valuable in the long run. So one of the concerns that has been voiced about our elementary report card, which uses those criteria, is like, well, I don't have time for to read three pages. And my, my response would be like, well, it gives you a much much more significant picture of where your child is at and the journey they're on should you choose to do so. Um, and I think it's fulfilling for our teachers to report that way on students. And so our hope is that movement towards that grows, but the amount of time and commitment it takes to prepare something like that is really, um, really a lot. Um, but we also added this year, based on some of your work, that open commentary field. And so I know that's new to people and it, that takes time, but I know, Dr. Guskey, your work has kind of suggested that that open commentary field can be used simultaneously to achieve two things, one of which is really something all parents long for, which is that glimpse into the classroom, right? How do I know what my child is learning? So do you want to talk about your experience with open comments? Sure. We've been looking into this in some detail because there's a major movement across the country to do away with grades and move toward comments only. Um, a lot of schools are taking on this idea they want to go gradeless but that's it's much more nuanced than what that implies 
you can kill a student with comments. Comments can be so nasty and so devastating. So that it's not that, that one is better than the other. It's really how you use them. And if you're going to use comments well, we find that there is a, a necessary almost four-step process that teachers need to employ. And this holds true with comments you would use in uh, talking to a student about their performance, uh, comments you would write on a paper, or comments you would even include in a report card, and even in conversations with parents. A four-step sort of model seems to be most effective. Uh, step number one is you always start with something positive. You initiate the conversation by saying, here are the things you did really well. Uh, number two, then you can move from that to, here are the things that need to be improved. You want to be able to identify the things that need additional work or need refinement in some way. Number three, offer specific suggestions on how to make those improvements. Here's how I think you could make it better. Or here's some strategies you might use to try to improve this. And then finally, express confidence in their success. Let the student know that you believe they can do this and that it's going to be better. And so increasingly, teachers are using a lot of what we call screencasting. Screencasting is a new sort of form of technology where uh, a teacher can pull up a sample of student work, a paper, presentation, anything like that. And any of these screencasting programs that are available, downloaded for free, they give you two minutes where you can offer verbal comments to students about their performance. And when I do this, I always follow that four-step process. I can use my cursor to look at a student's paper, a student's essay or composition and say, all right, here are the things you really did well. I really like the way this idea was developed and it really met our criteria. Here are some places where it could be improved. Here is how I think you might want to think about it differently or approach this to make it better. And when you do this, I know it's going to be great. I know that this is going to be so much better than what, what you have right now. And so it's that four-step process that seems to make the comments instructive, make them meaningful, but also communicate the teacher's confidence in the student so they develop confidence in themselves about being able to do this and meet those learning expectations. I really like the way you describe that because what it demonstrates is service to the student, not service to some si some outside perspective. And the reason I frame it that way is, one of the ways this movement gets held up is like, well, colleges are looking for grades, um, you know, and so you've already explained how that's not your experience everywhere, right? You talked about your experience in Canada, but um, I would suggest that what we have heard from colleges as it pertains to admissions is they do want to see a complete picture of a student and schools can most certainly help contribute to that with the picture they paint about students, not just producing ABCDF style grades, um, but what you just described, which is interesting to me about how feedback, I mean, we could do a whole nother hours and hours and hours on <laughs> feedback. You know, you, you utilize those comments in what research tells us is the best way to develop feedback, which is timely, specific, goal-oriented, right? You described all of those things. But the thing that really resonated with me was that last piece, demonstrating mm -hmm. that confidence that students, A, are capable, B, can achieve excellence, and C, have the ability to improve. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, in as education continues to evolve, there is so much put on teachers, right? The amount of things, stuff, curriculum we need to teach continues to grow. Our attention to new and novel concepts like the integration of SEL, you know, the idea of um, providing students opportunities to demonstrate mastery, like these, like all of these things take up time. And so it really becomes hard to focus on that. But I think going back to the idea of how we would want to be treated and recognizing that specificity in feedback as well as confidence that with 
the right effort and the right attitude we can achieve. I think those things are really critical and important uh, for us to continue to reflect on when we kind of get, we as educators get ground down, right? You know, morale gets kind of taken a beating with all of the new initiatives and kind of things that are put upon us by the state and just local communities, you know, recognizing that how critical the impact that teachers can have on students and their future, you know, a lot, it's a lot of what we're kind of getting into here. So, um, yeah, that's exactly right, Chris. And I think that just when students understand that their teachers believe in them and are confident that they can be successful, it has such a powerful impact on them and their disposition and their orientation towards school. Go ahead, Chris. You're going to jump in there, yeah. Yeah, no, I just I wanted to kind of circle back to I think we, we were talking a lot about um, the the report card and standard based report card. And you know, we were talking about fifth grade and, and having you know, the, the combination of like an easy way of saying, okay, it's an A, but it's also, you know, we have these standards that are connected, which is, I think we would go into that. But I think the most important part of, of any of that discussion that we have here is, is where the focus of the conversation is, right? So do we move the, the primary focus of the conversation from one that talks about my kid as a C and how do I get a B um, to a conversation that's much more driven towards, you know, I my kid has a P in this standard level. How how does how do they achieve the uh, the standard goal there? How do they achieve this specific area of being able to demonstrate? You know, that they're they're fulfilling a role within the class, which is a much more productive conversation. It's focused directly on the improvement of classroom culture and of the student um, and helping them attain goals. And not necessarily about, you know, these kind of individual grade points, which is kind of just like that, that in and of itself is a giant leap towards progress. All right. So I, I think, you know, first, Dr. Gusky, thank you for your time. I want to invite everyone to give their kind of last thoughts, but I'll kind of jump in with mine first. And so we've relied very heavily on your work, particularly Get Set Go, um, as well as some others, including conversations. This is maybe the third or fourth time I've had the pleasure of chatting with you. Um, about our practices and your research and how it can impact us. And I think one of the things that you need to keep in mind, not you, us speaking here, but the royal you, anyone who's listening to this or anyone who's considering how um, assessment and grades can be used as a productive part of what we do as educators is recognizing that every community and every school is different. The needs of those community and the, those students need to drive change. Um, and a significant change like this that has been so strongly rooted in the historical fabric of education takes time, it takes patience, it takes open dialogue. And so recognizing, I, I want to thank not only all of you today for having this conversation, but the members of our grading committee, which does span K-12. Um, and what I really like about that group is there is not a consensus agreement. There's some really great conversation about what is best for students. How do we, how does that, how, how does that impact the role of an educator and how does it best serve our community? And I think one of the things that you, you reference, um, in, in that, in Get Set Go is that context matters. And I think that we have placed a real high value on this dialogue as it pertains to and impacts our direction as a school district. And so Ultimately, I hope that the summary here is that we are committed to ensuring not only that we're implementing high quality practices that help students learn, feel valued, seen and loved in our schools, but also communicates that progress with really some explicit value to stakeholders, most specifically parents, as well as a student, right? We're all partners in this journey. 
and without an appropriate quantity and detail of information, we can't travel that journey together. So, you know, we are on that process of really trying to enhance what we do to make sure it is best for our kids. So, um, again, thank you, everyone. But I'll get, invite you, anyone who has a last thought or that they want to share. Um, one thing that I want to make mention of is as we continue to reflect and refine our practices, we go back to what our philosophy of grading is within the district. And so on the report cards, you'll notice that somewhere on your report card will be our Roxbury district philosophy of grading. And I'm going to end with reading that to you. The Roxbury School District believes the purpose of grade reporting is to communicate current student academic achievement as it relates to the mastery of standard-based curricular goals, along with additional criteria focused on the attributes that influence the ongoing learning process. The entirety of this report is representative of current factors, which form a basis whereby a student's learning may be encouraged, challenged, and supported. So I want to just kind of finish with that also is like the, the recent progress, right? The current progress of the students um, and how they're achieving at this time. And one of the things we're experimenting in the math department here is the, our, our reassessment procedures. Um, you know, if we have a bad day, if we don't do so well, how do I get another opportunity to now demonstrate my learning at a better value? And we're doing some kind of like in-house research and implementing some practices to see how that goes to give our students the best opportunity to demonstrate their, their best learning moving forward and learning real life skills of how to uh, improve upon their performance, right? How do you kind of reflect upon your achievement level at this time and how do you get better at it and how are you able to then demonstrate it at a different time? Yeah, I mean, just to uh, really quickly, I mean, you measure what, what you value and you value what you measure. And and I think, you know, moving towards this uh, this type of way of thinking about grading you know, opens up the door for us to, to constantly change and, and adapt to the things that we need um, and that students need within our community. I think it's a much better direction. All right. And Dr. Gusky, any last thoughts you would uh, like to leave us with? Well, sure. For my part, I just want to say thanks for this opportunity. It's such an honor and pleasure for me to have this opportunity to to work with people like, like you, Chuck, and Alicia, Jeff, Chris, and see the wonderful things you're doing to make this a reality in schools and see the benefit it can bring to the students that, that you're committed to and really want to serve well. Uh, it makes my work as a researcher and university professor so much more rewarding to be able to have these opportunities to learn about what you're doing and to take that and, and carry it forward and, and maybe offer some ideas that are going to be more useful to you as you go forward. So thanks. I really appreciate it. Uh, it's absolutely our pleasure, and we are super grateful and appreciative of your willingness to chat with us. Um, I'm confident I will be in touch um, and, and you know, uh, seeking your expertise as we continue to, on this journey. But uh, I'd like to thank everyone for listening. If you have questions, feel free to reach out. Ideas, um, this is certainly a journey that is important to us, but we do recognize um, has lots of steps and lots of nuances. So um, thanks for listening. Dr. Gusky, we'd like to thank you for your time, and have a great day, everybody. Good.